This week on the Backtable Podcast. It was so much cancer on the right to the outside edge of the organ. Dr. Kane said there's a highly likelihood it escaped. So I had my surgery in January of 2014. By August, my numbers started going up. So at that point, I went through 39 radiation, salvation radiation treatments. I can't remember if it was six months or a year on hormone therapy. The thought is there was a high likelihood I was warned about it. So, I mean, I felt good for a while, then bam, I kind of got hit hard. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm thrilled to introduce our guests today. We have Mark McGuire and Pat Scheffler. Now, this is a little bit different than our typical format where we generally have urologists. In today's episode, we actually have two patients that have been treated for prostate cancer, and Pat and Mark have kindly agreed to share their story, their prostate cancer journey, so us as providers may have a different set of insights on what some of the most pressing things may be for patients, and certainly so patients may also realize that some of the things that they likely experience are not unique to them. Thank you, Pat and Mark. How are you all doing today? Doing amazing. Thank you. Doing fine. Appreciate it. All right. So for for many men, their first kind of interfacing with prostate cancer or the possibility of prostate cancer starts with a PSA test. And maybe I'll just ask you, maybe Mark, we could start with you. When when was the first time that you started getting a sense that something might be going on? I actually didn't have any sense whatsoever. Back in September of 2013, and it's unique, I was actually in a restroom and there was a gentleman 15, 10 years older than me, and he's huffing and puffing. And the first thought I had is, wow, the guy probably has prostate cancer. And that's all I knew. I just thought that's an indication. I went back home. I was up in Idaho. Two weeks later, I had a bad ear infection from surfing. Thank God my doctor from 12 years was not in. There was another doctor there. And I said, hey, I turned 60 a few months ago. Is there anything I should check out while you take care of my ear? So he gave me a blood test. I had a PSA of 13. I had a granular cancer with zero symptoms. He saved my life. Okay. Pat, tell us a little bit about your your kind of early days. Well, I also had no idea at all. And in fact, the way I found out was that my son owns an insurance agency and I was helping him hit a bonus. I didn't need more life insurance, but I kindly tried to help him out. And poor guy called me back a few days later and said, hey, listen, dad, um, you need to go to the doctor because we got your result back for your PSA and it's probably wrong. And I said, okay, no problem. And he said, it's, you know, last year it was four and now it's 37. And so that's how I found out. I obviously went through to the doctor and took additional steps, but I had, I had no symptoms that I knew of. I mean, thinking back, there might've been some symptoms that now that retroactively I'm thinking that might've been related to it, but I didn't have anything that I knew of at all. And that time I was, you know, 55 or so. And so, and that's how I found out. So tell me a little bit about that kind of time frame from receiving your PSA tests, understanding it's normal, awaiting the consultation with the urologist. You know, what, what was that period like? For me, the first thing I did was what everyone does, which is the worst thing you can probably do. And I hit Google, right? 
So, you know, I was looking at the numbers and I, I was trying to stay calm and sort of recognize that, you know, there's a chance that it was a false number, but but realistically think that it was correct. You know, I just kind of stayed calm after the first, you know, couple of hours of looking at Google and of course, assuming the worst. And I thought, listen, I've been positive my entire life. I've been blessed with the ability to look at things and try and be positive regardless of what it is and let God kind of sort it out as long as I'm proactive in the way that I approach it. And that's what I did. You know, obviously you have a lot of things that go through your mind initially when there's that big unknown, right? I mean, obviously it wasn't very hard to figure out that velocity and a, a PSA that went that quickly from one number to another might be a thing that isn't great, right? So a lot of things went through my mind where, you know, I'm thinking the worst case scenarios, I'll never forget the moment that I found that out, that it went from that number. I remember my daughter of three kids was about to graduate college. And I thought to myself, there's no way I'm going to miss her graduation, right? And it's kind of irrational thoughts that you have like that, because that's not really something that would, you know, normally happen with that kind of a thing. But Beyond that, though, then I collected my composure and um, I just went through in a proactive sort of, you know, mechanical way to, you know, find the best treatment for me. And that's how I kind of process it. And it went, went for me. How about you, Mark? Well, it was shocking when I had the number and I had no idea what prostate cancer was or anything about it. And that's something that I hope all the doctors understand when they're in urology, they know it. But I was so naive at this. I had no knowledge. So when I found out, the first thing I did, my wife and I did a lot of research, found out what was going on. We interviewed a radiologist and three surgeons and picked their brains a lot. And we chose to go to UCSD. Fortunately, Dr. Kane was one of the surgeons that we interviewed and, and the team approach, I really liked that. And that's what sold us going there. Well, we're absolutely going to get to the diagnosis. You know, when, when you have a PSA test, there's a suspicion for cancer, but you don't have a diagnosis of cancer yet. Both of you all mentioned speaking to the families. You know, one of the things that I've noticed is many men don't actually share with their spouses, with their children. And clearly, the idea is to not alarm them or worry them. Did you all kind of wrestle with any of those types of emotions early on, just, just with the PSA that something's not right here? You know, I'm a normal, healthy man kind of cruising through life, and this is the first thing that's kind of hit me. Were you open and candid with the family from time point zero, or did it take you a little while to get there? I thought my wife's my advocate, my partner, and my son, and we just researched it as a team and went right at it right off the bat. Yeah, uh, that's a great point. I think that's one of the issues with prostate cancers. A lot of men don't do that, right? And it's a stigma. And I think that a lot of guys, at least what I've learned in ex with my experience with talking to hundreds of men over the last several years, is they don't do that. I, again, was fortunate and blessed to have had sort of the support aspect of it. And I went to my wife and my family and we you know, spoke about it. And it was a team effort all the way through for us. Pat, you made a great point. I believe it's the biggest secret in the world. And I think a lot of it came from in the previous surgeries were radical surgeries. And it took a man's manhood away. And they didn't talk about it. And they didn't share it. The ego got in the way. And now with the robotics and the different treatments, it's not like that. But it's the biggest secret in the world. I had never heard anything about it. I understand your point when you're talking about that. Yeah. I mean, we all do this in some shape or fashion. I've got small kids. They don't know everything that's going on in my life. I don't want to worry them. And, you know, some aspect of that 
probably is a evolutionary thing that stays with us. But seeing many, many patients with prostate cancer, even the elevated PSA can trigger an adjustment change. It's the first time they're kind of thinking about things like cancer, their own mortality, and they can end up in a dark spot. Okay, so we've got our PSA. We've got a, a visit with a urologist, and the urologist tells you ultimately maybe some other testing, et cetera, but you're going to need a biopsy. Walk us a little bit through that procedure. And then maybe even just a step beyond that, the biopsy and then waiting for the pathology result. Not in, not You haven't even received the news that you've gotten cancer yet. My case is really unusual, I think, or maybe it's not. But what happened with me was I went to a urologist. Again, what did I do? I didn't know anything, so I Googled it, right? And I found somebody who had five stars, a, a local company in San Diego that's a urology company, read nothing but good reviews, really. So I went there and had my biopsy through, you know, through this group and I was waiting for my biop for the results. And I said that I wanted to have, you know, other things done. Like I wanted to get an MRI and I was told that though, that's not how you do it, right? You wait for the biopsy results and then you move forward with the other things. And I'm kind of strong-willed. So I said, well, that's fine, but I'm going to do it, you know, my way, right? I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'm going to be proactive and I'm going to get you know, some MRIs and, you know, go through the process that I kind of wanted to go through. And so what happened with me was that we did the MRIs and then I went back for the results of the biopsy. And in the meantime, though, he had called me back after looking at the results of the MRIs. And he, he said to me, the analogy with your cancer is that if you imagine a plastic sandwich bag and you put your finger through it and it doesn't quite go through, but you can see it you know, sort of rubbing up against the edge of it as you're putting pressure on this plastic bag, that's kind of your cancer where it looks like there's pressure on the wall of your prostate, but it has not broken through. So that's great news. I said, okay, great. So I went in a week and a half later for the biopsy itself because I'd already had the results of the MRIs. And he said, okay, well, I also want to get you to in another week because I want to really look at your cancer closer because of the way that it's reacting. I said, well, but it is contained in the prostate, right? And he said, well, no, we don't know that because we can't tell whether it broke through or not. And so I said, well, you used the analogy and told me it hadn't gone through. And you even gave me the analogy with the plastic bag and the whole deal. He goes, I didn't say that to you. So I switched urologists. <laughs> and so luckily I went to, ended up at UCSD. I thought I'd done proper research and I wasn't happy with him. So I switched, ended up going to UCSD, but then I did another, you know, Dr. Kane looked at the results from the biopsy and gave me the results from that and told me that at that point that there was a clinical trial, I'd be a perfect candidate for it because in fact, they couldn't tell based on some of the results, whether it had broken through the prostate or not. So that was kind of my experience with it. But I think the point of it is, is you really have to be proactive and don't rely on, you know, doctors or systems necessarily. We need to be our own advocates and make sure that we're part of the process. Do you want me to talk about the biopsies also? Yeah, please, please. Yeah, absolutely. A friend of mine had kidney cancer and he went to another urologist in town. And when I went there with the PSA of 13 with zero symptoms, he goes, well, maybe just have a high PSA. It's unusual, but let's check it out. Biopsy. And that'll bring a tear to a glass eye, that biopsy. And it came up with a Gleason 9. And that's when I researched and looked for other doctors. And to Pat's point, my wife and I, we, we would write our questions on a piece of paper. She'd watch and make sure you checked them off. And I think that's such good advice for doctors to give to the patients. When you get in there and there's so much going on, I would forget. And so I wrote them down. 
And so we interviewed, like I said, five different doctors and chose the UCSD system. And it was Gleason 9, which is up there. So we knew we were on a ride. Well, I was just going to mention, you know, these days, it's a little bit of a new world that we live in where you go in and see your provider and they order a test. At least for most laboratory tests and imaging, you're going to get with that result many times without any context before anybody's discussed it with you. For pathology, there's a little bit more of a grace period, if you will, so that your provider could maybe call you. I, I would imagine that it would be somewhat disturbing to get a text message that said you have a MyChart message and you open it and it says you've got cancer. So what I what I do in my practice actually is I'll, you know, once a biopsy result comes back, I call the patient. I say, hey, listen, there was cancer in your biopsy. We're in a highly manageable situation. And I send them a QR code to kind of a introduction to prostate cancer and also vetted resources from the internet for them to peruse and educate themselves so that when they come in, it's not this deer in the headlights, nothing's getting synthesized because they're just like, wah, 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 I've got cancer. And there's zero chance to calm down, process, and ask the right question. You don't even know what the right questions are. Does any of this resonate with you all? I think that is such great advice you could share with the other doctors. I think sometimes it happens. It's your world, and it's so second nature to you folks, and it was so out of my world. That's a gift that would be very helpful for the patients to get that. Yeah, vetted information is the key because there's nothing wrong with the internet and information it provides, but it's the problem with it is the misinformation, right? So obviously that's that's huge. And I know Dr. Kane did the same thing. He called me and said, listen, it's manageable. It's, you know, it's unusual, but he was very candid. Again, I won't ever forget the moment he called me, 5.30 on a Friday, I was getting ready to go in for a haircut and he called me. I couldn't believe it. It made I could sleep that weekend, right? Because he kind of is a voice of reason. And so that's a great, great idea. And, and by the way, each time I went in all the way through the whole multiple years, I didn't hear anything that the doctor said. My wife was with me, luckily, and she was able to translate when we left what, what he or she said, because you don't, you don't hear it. I mean, you don't, you try to, and you're, you know, your mind is way faster than your ears. You know, she was sort of my ear. So that's a great point too, Mark. Yeah, Pat, by making that list, it forced, ask the question and listen to the answer because it is a spin when you're there. Okay, so you've got your diagnosis. I think there's typically some shock, some adjustment that kind of comes along with it. And, you know, I think many times we just try to, you know, suck it up and face it and get through it. And then I mean, I've certainly noticed on the, on the provider side, you know, there's patients where the wind is totally knocked out of their cells. You know, they came in one day for an elevated PSA consult and they're, you know, chipper and active and they come in not three weeks later after having a biopsy with a diagnosis of cancer and, you know, they're a shell of themselves. Did you all experience any of that after the diagnosis or was it just like, all right, it's time to get to work? I experienced it, like I said earlier, for a short period of time. I mean, I think every human being will, right? Mine was short-lived. And again, I, I say this all the time, but I feel super blessed that I have the ability to do that because it's it is unusual. I mean, I know I've been really involved with a lot of these things and I've seen, you know, case after case where guys just, it will, I've tried to be a really big proponent of the mental aspect of recovery and beating this cancer. Any cancer is mental, right? Obviously a lot of it is physical, but I think a big part of this is always your attitude towards it and your mental health and how you perceive things and, and how you react to them. And, and luckily for whatever reason, 
have the ability to, to kind of get through that in a positive way. And I know for a fact that it was one of the reasons that I've had really good luck with it. And again, I know that's not all of it. Obviously, the doctors at UCSC are unbelievable and they saved my life for sure. But I think that, you know, having a mental outlook on it that's positive really, really helps. And to your point, though, yeah, I mean, it, it was debilitating for whatever it was, a couple of days. And and then I snapped out of it. And I noticed a difference myself between the first few days and after that, when I decided, listen, I've got to take ownership of my you know mental abilities to be positive and see this thing through. So, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. You know, I think it is important that the providers meet the patients where they're at do a proper intake to see if they need anything from cancer center support services, psychosocial support, emotional support, spiritual support, any of that type of things, because I'd like to think it isn't, but it can be matter of fact. You know, it's your patient number 26 out of a 32 patient day. You've already seen five new patients with prostate cancer. It could be easy enough to say, all right, you got cancer. We're going to treat it. You should be fine. I mean, both of you all sought out multiple opinions, and I absolutely applaud you for doing that because it's not easy. If there's one take-home message that I have for any newly diagnosed prostate cancer patient is like, it's so much more important to be deliberate, to be comprehensive, to do your homework than to rush in and do anything. Nearly certainly with prostate cancer, that tumor has been in there for years and years and getting something done in the next 10 to 15 days is not going to be the difference between cure and not cure, but getting something done that you either regret or wasn't done perfectly is something that could impact your life. I think also something that's helpful is that it is a challenge when you hear that and you want to get your head around it, you want to have the right attitude, is some of the solutions that are available for the patient, whether it's radiation, it's hormone, it's surgery, some of the new treatments that are coming into the world. So there's some carrots out there that we can go a long way to curing you and getting you on the right path. And that's what I really felt confident talked to Dr. Kane and some of his team members. So that gave me the confidence, the energy to man up and fight through it. Did you feel like you had a good understanding of all of the options that were available? And that was something that was encouraged you to learn about all those options? Yeah, it was painted really clear. And with the high level and the Gleason 9 biopsy, they were real clear that there's a high likelihood it had escaped. I had, didn't have a tumor, so I had no symptoms. And then so I did a rituxan clinical trial out of UCS. Well, I don't know where it was centered. Had the infusions done there at UCSD. I did four infusions, four Fridays in a row through December and January. And then January 26, 2014 is when I had the prostatectomy with Dr. Kane performing it. So he came up the day afterwards, I think, somewhere around that, and he had said, Apparently, we do the prostatectomy, they roll it in some dye, so when they could see how close the cancer is to the outside edge, he said it's highly likely that it had escaped the organ. And he, he mentioned the salvage radiation and the Lupron. Okay. How about you, Pat? Did you kind of consider surgery, radiation, clinical trials? How did that process go? Yeah. And like I said, I, I was almost overkill, right? I mean, I went and talked to 50 patients who had had it in different areas of the country. I talked to people at the Mayo Clinic and I talked to people at UCLA, MD Andrews, I mean, everywhere, right? I talked to doctors. I did so much research and and ultimately, I mean, after the first snafu and I ended up at UCSD, but through UCSD, I was super educated and made fully aware of every option that was out there. And, and again, I, I really think it's important for patients to take ownership and be proactive in 
their search for what's best for them, right? Because we, I think we all know there are a lot of different treatment options and it's so complex in terms of how many different types of treatments there are depending on the cancer and the staging and all that kind of thing. So short answer is yes, absolutely. I felt comfortable when we went into the clinical trial that that was the best for us. Perfect. So when you were deciding, let's just say broad strokes, standard options, surgery, radiation, clinical trials, from the patient side, and it's so hard for me not to introduce my own biases from the provider side, you know, what were the factors that were kind of driving this decision? Well, for me, it was the simplest thing in the world. For me, since they didn't know definitively whether it had escaped the prostate, which is generally when you look at prostatectomy, I wanted it out, right? I wanted it out of there. And I just felt as if though the way I was leaning anyway, before I was introduced to the idea that there was this clinical trial, which to me, the one I was on was kind of the best of both worlds, right? You get these treatments and you get the surgery and then you have continued treatment. So it's kind of multiple tiered approach, right? Versus just surgery or just radiation or just treatment other than surgery. So for me, it was kind of a no brainer, but my personal mindset was I have cancer in the prostate. I want to remove the prostate. So it was really an easy decision for us. And again, the fact that there was a clinical trial attached to it, including surgery, made it really the easiest decision in the world. And I can see where a lot of guys would struggle between the different modalities. But for us, it was it was a really easy, real clear choice. And same with me, Pat and Aditya. It was clear it had to be a prostatectomy. I was well-educated through Dr. Kane and then also the people I interviewed. I would like to make also a comment. One of the people that I interviewed was a radiologist at radiation treatment. And this gentleman said he could cure this cancer with radiation. And he was part of a team. I met his partner that performed the robotic surgery. And she said that he would have to turn that into a lump of coal to cure a Gleason 9 with radiation. And they were actually team members. And this doctor that stated that, I told him the next doctor I'm going to be talking to is Dr. Christopher Kane. So I left. He actually came out the back door of the clinic and goes, hey, Mark, one thing I want to let you know. Sometimes Dr. Kane and I have kind of bumped heads a little bit. So take what he says with a grain of salt. Well, it turns out Dr. Kane has had to have prostectomies performed them after he's fried someone's prostate and not cured the prostate cancer. And you guys know better than I, but it's very difficult to do a surgery on the elasticized, cooked, radiated tissue. So thankfully, this guy's partner said, huge look at that doctor and ask him if he would recommend that to his father or his brother. And he won't. And she saved my life, I think, too. Yeah, well, that's that's insightful. <laughs> you know, I, I can tell you as a surgeon, I've certainly got my biases. I can also tell you that even over the course of my career, it's become abundantly obvious to me that what's most important here is prioritizing what the patient wants. And the reality is there's no high quality data that can tell you surgery is better than radiation, radiation is better than surgery, any of that. It's not my job to tell somebody that, you know, a higher likelihood of a chance for cure is more important than a low risk of leaking urine or having erections or any of the kind of typical things that we that we go through. And, and one of the things that I think is, one, appropriate and convenient for patients, more importantly, kind of keeps us honest, is we have multidisciplinary clinics where we see patients together. 
you know, I'm thrilled to work with a team of medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, where I think we all put our egos aside, not to mention I'm a salaried physician, whether you get surgery or radiation doesn't change my bottom line. So I think it can be very challenging though for patients. And there's studies that show if you saw a radiation oncologist first, you're most likely to get radiation. If you saw a urologist first, you're most likely to get surgery. And that's really not how it should be. You know, to that point, what sensed it with Dr. Kane was I asked him, so I understand you feel surgery is the best, but how do you do? How's your team members? Who do you get together to decide what the protocol is going to be for me? And he said exactly what you're saying, Aditya. He meets with the radiation oncologist and himself, and there was a couple other people, and the team sits at a board and they go through all these different cases and come up with a protocol they think's best with the patient. And he explained that to me, and that's when I knew we, I had the right surgeon. I was just going to point out, not to beat the drum, but that's why I think that it's so important that patients do their own due diligence or they're proactive in their care. They're their own best advocate. And uh, I think it's really important because like you said, I think that there's going to be natural tendencies, uh, biases by doctors. And But again, it, the data that I've seen doesn't suggest one or the other is really better. Although I have my own opinion on that, right? I think that that's, again, the the, the sort of theme here for me is that people really need to be, patients really have to be proactive and just don't go out and do whatever the first thing they hear is, no matter who they hear it from. I think that's a, a tremendous point. What I find that some people feel, they're so overwhelmed. And if they just leave it up to the doctor because they're not up to the challenge of owning their own health and the steward of their own health and their care. And so I think it's also great if the doctors can instill the confidence in the patient to take more ownership and do that research. But I think a lot of people surrender says, that's what the doctor tells me to do, I'm gonna do it, which is not the right way to go. It's not fair for the doctor either. And if we can help as the different doctors out there can you know, give them options, give them opportunities, give them the knowledge where they could do some more research and be a better advocate for themselves and draw more knowledge out of the different doctors. You know, I think it's a fair point and I'm just thinking to myself, so I'm a physician. And I spent the vast majority of my waking hours being a doctor. And, you know, I get an email from the dude at Fidelity that says, let's talk about your financial plan. I say, okay. And we run through a bunch of spreadsheets and models and what the fees are for this fund or that fund and large caps and small caps and these caps. And my eyes are glazed. And then I ultimately say, if this was you, does this look like a healthy, balanced portfolio? And I'm not trying to play a victim here, and I'm not a total Luddite idiot, but you know, I don't have hours and hours per week to research these things. It's not my areas of expertise, and I'm ultimately relying on somebody from a reputable outfit. So, Pat, I think when you said, I don't mean to beat the drum, absolutely, you got to beat the drum. And even, you know, practically, if you're resource limited, taking off four days of work to see four different doctors, that's not trivial. You know, transportation and all that kind of stuff can be serious. So I hear you a thousand percent, encourage it to my patients a thousand percent. But also, you know, having been on the other other side of it, you know, you're trying to get a home mortgage loan, you talk to somebody and, and you don't know, is this dude like a used car salesman or is this guy really trying to have my best interest at heart? So it's it's complicated. I think the term is you've got to vet them. You've got to vet your doctor like you would vet your financial planner or your mortgage broker. That's right. At least uh, in your all's cases, you made a decision for surgery. You know, when I talk to people about surgery without kind of going through the whole conversation, our main outcomes are cancer control, 
And at some point I say, I myself nor nobody else can guarantee you that you're cured or curable. You know, there's one cancer cell that could have left the body as we sit here today and gone to your lungs, or your liver, bones, et cetera. Then there's urinary continence issues. It's kind of normal, expected a part of the process to have some leakage after surgery. And then there's impact on sexual function. Those are the big three that are typically involved in prostate cancer. It's a little unfair since we all know and like Chris Kane, but do you feel like you were the conversation of what to expect and what actually transpired? Did they gel or was it like, oh my God, this is way different than what I anticipated? Or, you know, logistics, did you go to CVS and buy a bunch of men's diapers? Like <laughs> tell, walk me through those like early phases. So for me, I always plan for the worst and hope for the best, right? I did, of course, bought those things, right? And plan for those kinds of things and, and everything and, you know, planned on the worst. And uh, so my mindset was ready for it because that's, those are things that can happen. And when you do your research and you do diligence and you look at it, you know, that is likely, or some of those things are likely to happen. It's just sort of the nature of the beast, if you will. And so you know, it was it was the sort of conversation that was, you know, there was a lot of experience with nurse bearing and those kinds of things for Dr. Kane. And so I felt comfortable that if I was going to have good results, it was going to be with with him and some was with somebody that had a lot of experience like him. Again, I know I keep saying this, but I was very, very fortunate. I had almost zero side effects, like literally from the moment the catheter came out, I had no leakage, none, never. And sexual function, same thing. It was very short-lived, very short-lived. I don't, didn't, even after the first several months, didn't use any sort of Cialis or anything. I just didn't have to. So again, I was just just really lucky. And he did some serious nerve sparing and, and did a great job. But the expectation was that there would be a lot of those sort of side effects because we know that there could be. And you know, I don't care how experienced or how good a doctor is, that's not how anatomy works, right? And uh, there's going to be, there will be, a lot of instances where you're going to have, you know, certain side effects. And again, I just didn't have them. So I was, again, just really, really fortunate and really, you know, blessed to have, you know, very, very low level of any kind of side effects at all. Mark, how about yourself? Yeah. Dr. Kane was clear on the possibilities. And sometimes from a sitting position, when I'm tired, standing, I'll get a little leakage. Not much. He's done even go through the pants, but I did feel probably about a 30 to 40% reduction as far as erectile. And it knocked it down some, without a doubt. Uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting that I've talked to hundreds of people, and the only one I know that I've heard, Dr. Kane prescribed a quarter of a Viagra for the first several months to increase blood flow in that area. And no one I've talked to that their surgeons prescribed that. And it seemed like they had more issues than I did. Yeah, I would say, you know, Sexual rehabilitation is pretty commonplace. I'd like to think that that's done by most people performing these surgeries these days. You know, I almost, in my opinion, feel like there should be like a mandatory four to six weeks after a diagnosis before you can decide what you want. Because what happens is you hear cancer and all you want to do is not die of cancer, whatever it takes. Despite the urologist sitting there and telling you, if we do nothing, there's about a 2 to 3% chance you're going to die in 10 years. You want that thing out, then you want it radiated, then you want any type of the kitchen sink to keep you alive, whether that means you're, you're impotent and leaking for the rest of your life. But as you get educated and empowered, you realize that 
there's a way to go about this that can preserve the things that are important to and some of the quality of life aspects. I mean, of course, it's wonderful that you all didn't have any long-term lingering side effects. And, you know, statistically, we know from large population-based series that 70% of people are going to have serious ED, whether it's after surgery or radiation. You know, it's real and it happens and, you know, it, it can be a change. And, you know, men that have never leaked a drip drop in their life might be dealing with pads and diapers and accidents and and all of that. It is normal. It's a part of the process after surgery. I think the impact mentally, physically, emotionally can be quite dramatic. I mean, the one thing I'll add is that I, I do know that you had said earlier, we're talking about guilt and those kinds of things with diagnosis and, and your family and not wanting to worry people and things like that is the guilt I've had really, honestly, if any, is is when I do talk to people and groups and give talks and those kinds of things and try and help people get through it is I recognize that I've had such a non-negative experience, right? I, I don't know if anything's positive about cancer, but I've had so many things that have gone my way that it's almost like, hey, listen, this is great. I didn't have any side effects. And it's almost like it's kind of a fine line, right? I want to tell men and I want to encourage them and I want to have them be their own advocate. I want them to make their own choices. I want them to be positive and all this kind of thing. But at the same time, it's like, well, yeah, but Pat, you didn't have any, you know, you've had no problems the whole time. I go, yeah, but I did have stage three cancer. And, and I think that the mental part of it really helps. So not to go in some sort of a tangent about mental health and the mental part of this whole thing, but I think that that's where the guilt comes in a little bit, where I've had such good success with the treatments that I've had and experienced. I think that that's a little bit tough. But beyond that, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more because obviously I know thousands of men who have had different types of treatments over the last five years. And generally, the, you know, there are some level of side effects for sure. And so, yeah, I appreciate you saying that because that is very common for sure. I have a friend of mine that he, the only way is to use the injection to get an erection and he wears a pad all the time. And he was in Durango where the surgery, it's not really known for surgeons. And so I think a lot of it's people not researching, not willing to travel, not willing to go to a metropolitan area and get the right surgery. I think he had a disservice. Yeah. And I mean, there's all the logistics of, you know, I had a patient the other day who was considering getting his surgery done in LA versus New York versus here. And I said, you know, really, it's going to be the surgeon that you feel most comfortable with. I think we can, we can do a very good job here, but you've got to kind of make that decision for yourself. But it's not every Tom, Dick, and Harry that can leave work for two or three weeks, take up an apartment in uh, New York or L.A. or whatever, and then get on with it. But I think, you know, regardless of the outcome, going into it educated, which goes back to the self-advocacy, which should be facilitated and made easier by your provider, is minimizing treatment regret. If you go in and you've never heard about the full spectrum of things that are available to you and you don't have a good outcome, a natural tendency is, did I do everything that I should have done? Did I advocate for myself? Was I as informed as I should have been going into this? So we've made it through surgery. You know, let's just say side effects, either with Kegels and quarter Viagra, Cialis, physical therapy. We're kind of getting back to some semblance of our preoperative cell. Tell me a little bit about PSA draws. What does that look like in the first one, year one, year two? Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, uh, what happened? Stressful. <laughs> because it was so much cancer on the right to the outside edge of the organ, Dr. Kane said there's a highly likelihood it escaped. So I had my surgery in January of 2014. By 
August, my numbers started going up. So at that point, I went through 39 radiation, salvation radiation treatments. I can't remember if it was six months or a year on hormone therapy. The thought is there was a high likelihood I was warned about it. So, I mean, I felt good for a while, then bam, I kind of got hit hard. <laughs> okay. So you'd been prepared that there could be more coming. And then that kind of, you know, confirmed that we've got a little bit more work to do, but you felt like you'd been prepared. How about, how about you, Pat? So for me, I was on treatment pre-surgery, right, for six or eight months. And so I started doing PSA testing, you know, obviously right away. And it went down steadily, which was good. And that's what's sort of supposed to happen. Um, I was on hormone therapy and some other treatments. And it went down to the point where it was, you know, getting, it was really low at surgery and then had surgery. And that's when it was really stressful, right? After surgery, of course, the first couple and came back undetectable at four weeks or so was the first one. And then every three months I've had it for the last, you know, almost five years. In fact, we just switched to every six months the last time. So it's been every three months up to six months ago. But even five years later with undetectable, still it's naturally stressful, right? And so obviously with me, since it's been undetectable, it's been good. We've been really happy with that, obviously. So along that line, it was three months, then dropped to six months. Then in April of 2020, my numbers started climbing. So it was less than 0.001 and it climbed every three months between 50 and 100%. And it has continued to climb. And then as the numbers gotten larger, my last test was in November. I had a PSMA, couldn't find any cancer cells. And my number was 1.67. I just had a blood test a couple of days ago. It's gone to 2.43. So I had a 50% growth in the last three months. So I'm looking at something huge coming up. Well, I appreciate you sharing that, Mark. I mean, it's not always easy. PSA testing, whether it's men on active surveillance, whether it's men just getting a PSA testing, it seems like there's likely no lab test out there that causes more anxiety and consternation than a PSA test. You know, ironically enough, I think that this is another space where doing your homework, hopefully emphasized by your providers that most of the time you're going to be okay. I mean, obviously it's a pretty major fork in the road, cancer, no cancer, but again, just to kind of know, you know, if you if you were my patient, when you had a PSA recurrence, I would say, hey, listen, if we did nothing at all, it would typically be about eight years until you develop a metastasis. And then if we continued to do nothing at all, it'd be another five years until you died. And most men, you know, in their 70s or so, if you say that you've got 13 years, if we do nothing, and I'm not proposing that we do nothing, that kind of diffuses some of the anxiety out the gates. But, you know, I think these test results are, are stressful. We kind of live and die by them. There's this term of scanxiety, largely for CT scans and so forth. And there ought to be one if it isn't already for PSA testing. But how how is that news broken to you, Mark? When the climbing was going up, when I got over 1.0, is generally when the insurance companies and the protocols, from what I understand from Dr. Millard, who is I see every three months. And I was six years of everything was fine. So it started just about a little under three years ago. And he's been very good about saying how slow growing it is. He's seen people with outrageous numbers and also different things using the hormone therapy where you hit it for six months. And if the numbers are dropped, you back off. So then you're back up to yourself again. 
The other thing, when we talked a couple months ago, I think would be also really helpful for patients is what's on the horizon? What's the carrot we can look at? Bless you, Pat. I hope it goes perfect. If something should change, what helps hang on is, well, they're working on all these different things. There's hope out there. And what's so ironic also about the PSA test, it's, it's pretty definitive. It's a huge benefit for our health. Where from what I understand of breast cancer, they, they don't have any number or any test. It's finding masses. So in one sense, it's stressful, it's crazy. But the other sense, it's pretty definitive too. When you're seeing no growth with you, Pat, and you see that number, you feel great. But some of the other cancers, from my understanding, you don't get this read like that. So it's it's bittersweet. Part of it's fantastic and part's scary as heck. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that, Mark. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the community, certainly here at UCSD, we're always trying to not just provide the standard of care, but to push the envelope. And, you know, both of you all mentioned being enrolled in clinical trials, which is, that's a leap of faith. But, you know, in some form or fashion, it's conceivable that that's why you're here to, to tell the story, which is, which is amazing. Tell us a little bit about that decision. So for me, it was, it was a perfect storm of greatness, right? I mean, I had, you know, come across Dr. Kane after doing all this, you know, research and all these things and, and felt super comfortable. And, and at that point, I'd made the decision to have surgery, right? And so I was really comfortable with having surgery with Dr. Kane. And then on top of that, the clinical trial came across. And like I said, it's sort of the best of both worlds, right? It's, it's this treatment pre-surgery. And then in my case, it was treatment post-surgery. So I had all this treatment surrounding the surgery and surgery in the middle of it. And so, and by the way, Dr. McKay is, I love her. We love her. She's just amazing. And so you know, Dr. Kane is a surgeon is great and Dr. McKay. And so we, it was just a super, super natural and easy decision because again, it was something we were already going to do. It's almost like you have what you wanted, plus you're getting all this other stuff mixed into the equation. So for us, it was a perfect storm of blessedness for sure. And so we just had an amazing team on top of that. So it's, it was a really easy, real good decision for us. And for myself, Aditya, my wife's mom takes rituxin for rheumatoid arthritis which I guess I heard it starts from lymphoma. And from my limited understanding, it's the way the prostate cancer cells stick to the white blood cells or some white cell. So it made sense in my limited understanding and knowledge. And I felt I didn't have anything to lose. I was a Gleason 9. Rituxin's been used. I mean, my, my mother-in-law is using it. So I didn't feel it was a high risky type of treatment. And so that's, and then the other, it could help cure other people. I thought that was a fiduciary responsibility also to participate. Yeah. And I mean, not clinical trials and some of the testing we do, you know, we do germline testing to see if you have any hereditary cancer predisposition genes. And I think that can also be heavy. You know, you're thinking about children, if you have children, siblings, maybe just a word on, on that, getting, making the decision to do that or not. And then that wait period, I can imagine, you know, being a father that that could be just about as stressful as the whole rest of it. The first thought I had when I thought that, it, or I found out that I had cancer was something about my kids, right? And so that's a huge part of our world. And so for sure, we had, you know, th that type of testing done. And of course it's stressful because, you know, again, it goes back to the whole sort of guilt equation inside of the cancer world, right? And and it's like, oh my gosh, yeah, we want this testing. We want to make sure we want to see whether there's these, you know, there's susceptibility to cancer, whether it be breast cancer and the rock gene or, or prostate cancer. And so 
you know, the decision to do it again was easy to have this testing done, but, but the waiting period is that, that anxiety waiting for it to be done, but you know, that it's something that you need really need to do. Right. And so it was uh, something that we thought that was an easy decision to do that kind of testing, but we did it and, and um, everything turned out. Okay. So. I think it's a great idea to do the testing. I think the more knowledge, the better. And my understanding is most cancers, the sooner you get at them, the more likely of a positive outcome. And I think that gives some more clues on how to watch out for your children and help them have a successful life and a, and a healthy life. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, even over the course of this conversation, there's so many things, right? There's the screening, there's the diagnosis, there's the treatment making, the soliciting of multiple opinions and survivorship issues, impact on your family. It's a lot, it's complicated. And it's, it's a lot to kind of hammer out in like a 15 to 20 minute doctor's visit. You know, for me personally, it's been extremely valuable to hear things from, from the other side. It's not always feasible. It's not an excuse that we don't, that we can't do this with every patient in this detail, but I really appreciate your sharing your stories. And maybe I would ask as we, you know, come upon an hour, any kind of parting thoughts for the listenership, maybe one directed towards providers and one directed towards patients. I mean, I think the biggest thing for prostate cancer specifically, and I don't obviously know your feelings on this, and I think it's changed a little bit over the last, you know, five or 10 years, but I, I don't think guys... I think that it's important that men do a few things. I think one is that they are cognizant of prostate cancer. Most men, a lot of men don't even know what it is or what a prostate is. So I think it's important men know what they learn what that is. I think it's also important though, that they do, they do earlier testing or early testing. You can do PSAs to do a, a, you know, and I know there's some, there's some controversy about early detection and over treatment and those kinds of things. But I think that you know, you get a baseline, especially and obviously if you have family history, I think that it's very important that you develop a baseline with a PSA and, you know, guys are guys and guys are afraid the old joke about, you know, a finger and all that about, you know, finding out and they think, oh my God, I don't want to do that. It's like, well, you want, you know, you want, you do want to find out because you want to find out whether you have that or not so you can treat it. And as Mark said, early detection with all cancers is super important. So I think that's one, right? Finding out and understanding what the prostate is and what prostate cancer is, what the likelihood is that you do or don't have it at some point in your life and whether there's family history. Two, that we're proactive in our discovery of treatment if we have prostate cancer. And, and uh, that doesn't mean just looking somebody up and going to that person because they've got five stars like I did. It means doing much more due diligence, which I went overboard after that maybe, but really being your own advocate, you have to do that. And doctors are people. You know, there's some great ones and there's some that aren't so great. And I think finding a group like UCSD that has all these things and takes it an organic approach and a team approach is personally, I think the best way to go about it. And the last thing is when you determine what you're going to do, that you get as much support as you can and you don't internalize everything. And this is me personally, but I think that it, there's value in it and staying positive because to your point, I mean, you've got a lot of time, even if you've got prostate cancer in the worst case scenario. So I think that it's very important that men stay positive or as positive as they can throughout their journey and understand that it's, it is what it is and you have to fight through it and being positive in your outlook is going to do nothing but help. It's not going to hurt. And I think those are really important things for any man going through this, this journey. Thanks, Pat. How about you, Mark? One of the things that I've found is I do not think a lot of general practitioners understand the PSA test. They look at it as a balance sheet number, a snapshot, and not understanding the trailing average. 
And I've had to explain this to a couple people and almost every guy I talk to. And the other thing that Pat mentioned, yeah, the first thing when I was before thought about prostate cancer, I want someone putting a finger in my butt. You know, I mean, that does no good. It's all about the blood test. I mean, afterwards, you may need to do some exam. And the and I go, you're getting a blood test. They don't have to get any extra blood and get yourself a trailing average. And if it pops up three months later, get checked out. I think one of the things we need to do as patients and also as urologists, I think we have to put a big effort to educate some of the general practitioners and some of these internists that I don't think they really understand it. And maybe, and I think a lot of it came from dads that had radical surgeries that could never have an erection again. So they keep it all mom and they don't talk about it. Maybe their uncle has it and they don't know how things have changed. But I think we've got to educate a lot of the general practitioners. I think speaking to like police officers, fire department, getting this thing pushed out there so people understand. I mean, if if I would have had my prostectomy at five or six, I wouldn't be in this situation right now. And that's why I'm sharing today. The great points, Mark. But I'll add too, though, from the provider perspective and my feedback from the from sort of the industry, from the medical side, I think it's really important that people, doctors, while they have their own biases, let the patient make the decision in an informed way, like like you suggested earlier. I think that's super valuable. Cancer patients are human beings, right? Just like doctors and lawyers and you know any other person, we're all human beings. And so I think that with your group, you guys all, in my experience, do a very, very good job of communicating. And to me, when you're going through it, it goes back to my, me- my perspective on the mental health par- part of it. Your group in particular is very, very good at communicating. And there's nothing more frustrating when you're going through any challenge in life, especially cancer or something medical, that you're not getting communication from your provider. You can be the best doctor in the world, but if you don't communicate with the patient, it just kills the experience and it, it plays on the mental health. So I think you guys are great at it, but I think my suggestion to the overall medical field in cancer and prostate cancer is communicating with the men about, about the disease. So I think, again, you guys do a great job, but I think it's super important. Well, hey, you know, I, again, appreciate you all candidly sharing your stories. I do think that we'll be able to disseminate this to our listenership and nearly certainly all of us can take away something that would help us to be better doctors for the patients listening. Thanks for your time. And hopefully there's some tidbits in here that empower you to be your own advocate and take a proactive role in your care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Pat and Mark. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Really appreciate it too. Thank you. Thank you, folks. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Vidavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.